Live from Red Bull Studios, New York. I'm in love with my life. Hello, this is Mary H.K. Choi, and you're listening to Hey, Cool Job. My next guest is an awesome guy who, full disclosure, I've had the pleasure of working with. He's the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. His name is Axel Alonso, and man, does he have a kick-ass job. I'm in love with my life. Hey, Mary. (laughs) How's it going? Great. I'm super, super stoked. So you have been, and this is why I'm launching straight into it without any preamble. You've been EIC of Marvel Comics since 2011. You've been at Marvel for a thousand trillion years. But before that, you were a reporter for the Daily News and you have a master's in journalism from Columbia. What did you actually want to be when you grew up? Uh... What did I want to be? Probably the starting point guard for the Golden State Warriors, <laughs> but I didn't have quite the gifts. You know, my father and mother just encouraged me to do something that involved reading and writing. Mm-hmm. And so I always knew that I would end up somewhere uh, in, a, in a field that, that, that took, you know, advantage of those talents. Um, you know, so I, I think that at some point in life, I decided I was going to be a reporter okay. and write the big story that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that changed the world. Uh, but that, that was not going to be my path. So what did your parents do that they encouraged this? Because, I mean, I'm Korean, so my parents are like, you're going to be a lawyer, and that's it. There you go. There you go. Well, like yourself, I'm a first-generation American. My mom is English mm-hmm. from, from London. My father's Mexican and Spanish from Mexico City. He was a dentist um, who, whose specialty was making incredibly ornate prosthetics for people that had really bad problems. Like if you had half your face blown off by a shotgun, he was the guy that would rebuild your jaw for you. That's rad. So he was really into sculpting. He did that on the office and um, he's deceased now. I, so I can disclose that he used to do work on, on uh, immigrant Mexican men's teeth in our basement and charge them a Corona. When I was a young man, so it was not uncommon for me to go down and see him working on some guy's teeth. It was a That's great time. That's awesome yeah, though. That's was, like a humanitarian effort. That's exactly. Exactly. <laughs> who loves beer. No um, doubt. And my, my mother, she was a librarian turned banker. So, oh shit. Yeah. Well then, <laughs> but that's kind of amazing. Like they weren't like, you have to pursue orthodontia or nothing. Yeah, no, it was really cool. You know, I, I spent a couple of summers working in my dad's lab and doing some stuff. So I, you know, I got to learn some of that, but he, my father could tell it wasn't for me. Okay. You know, and, uh, you know, I think they saw very early on that I really love the arts. Well, what kind of kid were you? Like, were you always like a comics fan? Like what was your vibe? Yeah. I mean, um, I'd say that, you know, I was good enough at sports to never be a nerd, but I was never cool. You know, mm, basketball, saved, yeah, basketball saved me from being, you know, a, another nerd. But, you know, I was awkward around girls. Um, I was into comics from an early age, but um, I gave them up a little bit when I became a preteen because I realized. Because it, girls. Exactly. Because girls. <laughs> sure. Exactly. Uh, you nailed it. Uh, but I always had a, a secret love for that stuff. And uh, I rediscovered comic books in, in college, of all things. Uh, and... Uh, I've never, ever, ever thought I'd end up in this job, though. That's amazing. So, you know, I read in an interview that when you were younger and you were growing up and you latched onto characters like Luke Cage because there were no, you know, characters that looked like you in any of the universes. And the funny thing is that, like, white people don't understand, like, growing up in an unwoke world where you kind of sort of make do with the characters that you do have. You have mixed race kids. Like, exactly. what do you want, what do you want the sort of pop culture landscape to look like for them? I just want my kids to be able to see the reflection in everything around them and to feel there's a world of possibility for them, not that they're limited. 
Um, you know, I know that there, there were choices that, um, and roads I didn't think I could, I could travel. I certainly never, ever dreamed of being editor-in-chief of Marvel comic books and never mm-hmm. worked toward this goal. I worked toward a more practical goal. You know, as a kid going, you know, on a Friday with my grandmother to buy a couple of comic books before my mom came home from her long day at work, you know, I would pick out a couple of comic books and it occurred to me that I always gravitated toward characters that were a little more offbeat. Mm-hmm. You know, I was really into Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, Luke Cage, the Black Panther. Over at DC Comics, I like the Unknown Soldier, who was this military guy whose face was wrapped in bandages. And I always kind of related to them a little bit more than the perennials. Right. You know, more than Spider-Man or, or, or Batman or any of those characters. Or any of those sort of old school, like gold and silver era sort yeah. of yeah, white I, guys. <laughs> I, 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 there was always a place for them in my life, but sure. I never ever responded to them quite the same way as I did to Shang-Chi. Right, right. So, you know, you going back to like DC and stuff, you worked at DC and specifically you, your tenure there saw some of like the coolest things ever. Um, you worked at one of my favorite imprints ever, Vertigo. And you worked on Preacher and 100 Bullets, which is like, that's so cool. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, how did that experience inform your trajectory at Marvel? Well, it was, it was a great experience for me. I, um, I had been working as a journalist and I saw an ad in the New York Times that mm-hmm. DC Comics was looking for editors. So on a lark, I put in my resume and I got an interview. Um, the guy who interviewed me at the time, the late Lou Stathis, um, called me in and he already knew who I was. And he knew who I was. Whoa, wild. It, How? It was the weirdest thing. Um, talk about meant to be. He had read an article that I'd written for, um, I believe it was Newsday or the Daily News. And it was about the cannabis leaf and hip hop and popular culture as a whole. And two of the people I interviewed were the chief um, drug enforcement agency uh, agent for enforcement of marijuana enforcement laws and the editor in chief of High Times. And it just turned out. I feel out like that, Venn diagram wise. That's like <laughs> <laughs> well, they were, let's just say that their, their videos were very extreme. Yeah. And uh, it was very funny because, you know, um, the, Lou was, was thrilled by the article because he felt that the, uh, the, the, through their own quotes had come across as being idiotic. And it just so happened that the editor-in-chief had stolen his girlfriend. Oh, snap. So, so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he, he, tore, he tore out this article and he kept it. And since I have an unusual name, he remembered my name. Yeah, so you he, kind of have like... Your name's awesome. It means King of Peace. <laughs> it yeah. sure does. No, the alliteration, it's very strong. Yeah, it's a good name if you're going to if you're going to be in, in a creative field without a doubt. No, yeah. for sure. It sounds kind of made up. It's a bad <laughs> uh, it's a bad schoolyard name when you're a little boy though. Fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, yeah. what are some of the the barbs that you had you to You don't want to hear. You don't want to hear. <laughs> I used to beg my dad to rename me either for real, Sinbad, and this is pre-comedian Sinbad. <laughs> Or Fred. I thought Fred was the coolest name. Why? Because Fred's like completely nondescript. Nobody, it's like Jennifer. Nobody messes with a Fred. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Fred, it's, it's, it's manly. You know, it's not, it's not ostentatious. You know, I, I wanted that name bad. Stand-up guy, Fred. No doubt. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so he, he's, he rips out this article and he's like, this kid is going places. And you like darken his door and that was Pre- it? Pretty much. I mean, I came into my suit, you know, um, and uh, basically, he, he remembered me from the byline. We chatted, and at the end of the, the interview, which was more a conversation, he asked me if I wanted the job. And I gave it some thought, and it was quite a, a come down in pay from when I was used to. Um, it wasn't a lateral move, but I took it because I figured it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And, um, you know, if people aren't familiar, the Vertigo imprint it was a boutique imprint, mature readers label at DC Comics that did um, off-the-beaten-path work. It was non-superhero comic books. And, um, and creatively, it was just 
balls out. Like it was so mega weird. Yeah, at that time, without a doubt. I mean, you had Neil Gaiman, mm-hmm. you know, with the Sandman. Um, you had on the other end, you had Garth Ennis with Preacher. Totally. Uh, so it, you know, I, I always, you know, I, I made it very clear early on to Karen Berger, my my group editor, that um, I didn't really have much to say about unicorns and fairies and that <laughs> and, and mythology, but I, I had a lot to say about street level crime and 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 politics and what have you. And so that's really the niche I tried to carve for myself when I was there. No, that's awesome. It's like kind of like a really huge and fun and bendy toolbox to give all of these writers who just then ran with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the sky was a limit. And I had a, I had a blast without a doubt. I mean, did you have to earn that? Or were they like, oh, here, you can play with this? I had to earn it. How long did it take? Well, I, I'd say I was probably invisible for a couple of years. Um, I, I was, no joke, I was at the edge of quitting. And I got the opportunity to do couple of books, Unknown Soldier and Weird War Tales, which were very different from everything that was being done at the time. And it turned out they were hits, uh, you know, and, and as a result, my instincts were trusted a bit more. And I continued to carve out my own ground with, you know, 100 Bullets and Human Target and books like that. Uh, so for me, you know, it, 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 was a, it was a great place to, to you know, um, spread my wings and learn the field, really. Yeah, but I can imagine some of like the transcripts for the meetings where you're like, listen, it's going to be fine. <laughs> oh, no doubt. Listen, every day, an issue, every month, an issue of Preacher would come out. No, seriously, and like would, everything act two onwards. It's like <laughs> I would wait for the email that said my services were no longer needed. Yeah, yeah, I would yeah. go into my office expecting human resources to be there. Like, what were you thinking? Letting this get published? Uh, but it, it turned out that I, uh, it, it worked out. Yeah. No, it was such a good run. So you write, edit, now you're ESC at Marvel. You kind of hit the ground running with changing the racial landscape of the characters, like at jump, like first going with Miles Morales, a Hoppa, Black and Latino Spider-Man. How much resistance did you experience in ushering in this character? I wouldn't say encouraged much, much resistance. I mean, Miles Morales was an idea that I pitched years before we did it. But in retrospect, it was a good thing we waited. Because um, for a lot of reasons, one of which was the fact that, um, that Brian Bendis, the writer, came up with the idea of making him um, biracial, Hispanic and African-American, sort of deepened the character, um, gave him additional nuance, but also because I think that the market was better braced for it. You know, when we first announced Miles, um, there was quite a, a reaction out there on the internet, um, you know, mostly negative, as is always the case when you do something right, different. Right. It also, there was also stuff in the media, you know, people had a lot to say. And, um, you know, one thing I've learned in this industry is when you do something new, people have a lot to say about it. And Period. Yeah. Exactly. Sometimes it comes from the right, sometimes it comes from the left. And the extreme poles, they're, they're not that different in, in their level of tolerance. Well, the, yeah, the histrionics are always like, you know, fucking relax, basically. That, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So is it true that the combination of President Obama coming into office and Bendis seeing Donald Glover and Spidey PJs make Miles happen? It was a confluence it, it, of things? Yeah, you know what? It, 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 um, it, it was. I'd say that more than anything, it was in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I don't think there was ever any resistance to it. It was really a matter of let's find the right time to do these things. Yeah. Uh, and but I mean, it's no coincidence that you were, speaking of going into office, like you were at the helm for like, oh, a, a second and yeah, then all this I, crazy I, stuff started I, I, happening. I, I like, I like to think so. Absolutely. Um, you know, when I, when I first came to Marvel, um, I did a number of books, you know, truth, red, white, and black was one of them I'm very proud of, which was the first book about the, the, the first black captain America. It was rooted in history. 
um, the Tuskegee experiments. And, um, you know, it, it, it asked the question, would it make sense that in, in this era of time that the guinea pigs for this, this experiment would have been guys for the same demographic as Steve Rogers? And, you know, it was, it was I thought, a, a, a pertinent question. Um, it, it ended up being the, 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 the driving question behind a series that ended up being controversial before it launched, but ultimately um, became a classic. And, well, the and, depth of that question even existing, you know, like you get a lot of derision from other people who don't read comics that there are certain surface things to like superheroes and things like that. But if you just take like the component, component of power and break it down as to how it corrupts people and like where, how it moves around, comics just becomes so fascinating and such a, you know, instrument of like telling stories that are happening around us Without all the time. Tell. I mean, comic books are modern mythology. You know, I would argue that when you have a superhero who's dressed in red, white, and blue and carries a shield, that he exists to tell a particular kind of story. Mm -hmm. And that story is very different from a guy who turns green and, and knocks down buildings or a guy who puts on tights and swings through the sky. And, you know, you, you just, you, you have to be willing to go there and take risks with a character like that. You know, ultimately that story, I think, was about building bridges between people, mm -hmm. um, even though some, certain people thought it was going to be about building walls. Um, just the same way as seeing Sam Wilson now wearing the red, white, and blue sure. um, is it's relevant to our day. It means something. Him Absolutely. being Captain America is different than Steve Rogers. Absolutely. Especially in the America that we're currently in. And the other thing too, is that I think it really, for me, you know, going back to sort of representation and us growing up without seeing people like us in the world, there is something to be said for the fact that Steve Rogers is an extreme type of person, not like extreme as in like an extremist, but like we're talking like you know, a blonde, like white male American, like, you know, just like likes to grill meat type dude. And now there should be other iterations of that sort of recognizing that this isn't like the one thing that this can be. Well, what, what I would say about Steve is I don't think Steve quite as cut and dry as that. I think. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, post-Civil War and yeah, all that, he's like yeah, a yeah, lot more yeah, nuanced. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd say what Steve Rogers is, is it Steve Rogers is meant to represent the, the American dream, the right. aspiration. Um, but I knew as a kid, for instance, when I picked up Captain America comic books, I happened to be picking them up in an era when it was called Captain America and the Falcon. And that was an era when Cap, every issue had him fighting alongside Sam Wilson. Mm -hmm. And I, I loved the Falcon because the Falcon, he was more cynical. He had a, a more of a street level attitude. He saw things that Cap didn't and brought them to his attention. And so they were a great buddy book. Um, and I think that they complemented one another. Steve's optimism and virtue helped Sam believe. Sam saw that Steve didn't see color. Steve was launching into, into the world with eyes open. Uh, and I think that's really ultimately what you want to do. But I do, I do agree with the larger point that being Steve Rogers and wearing that red, white, and blue is going to mean something different than if you are your Sam Wilson or let's say you're Amadeus Cho. Right. Everyone's going to bring a different, a different idea about what that responsibility is to the table. No, and I think it's incredible that you're lending the sort of kaleidoscopic aspect to what the American dream does look like. I think it's rad. I think it's really important. Well, yeah, I think it is too. <laughs> I think it's very important that, uh, you know, we live in a very different era now than when. Yeah, what we're able to discuss like in every medium is wonderful. I agree. So, you know, since we've, since you've been EIC, we've gotten... The smartest person in the Marvel U being Moon Girl, or allegedly, um, who is black and nine years old and a girl, obviously. A black Iron Man, a.k.a. Riri Williams, who is a young woman at 15. A Pakistani-American Muslim in Miss Marvel. And a woman Thor, 
a black Captain America, Sam Wilson, like we said. And again, going going back to what we were just talking about, my personal favorite, Korean Hulk, with a Korean writer and artist team, Greg Pak and Frank Cho. Dude, makes me so happy. So did Hulk make the most sense as being Korean because of this cultural phenomenon we know as Han? Are you familiar with well, what I this am. is? Well, I am. My wife is Korean, which right, makes exactly. me Korean. So yes, I do know. Um, you know, as much as I'd like to say it was that type of uh, specific angst. Um, no, it really, what, what it came down to was two things. First of all, creatively, it just made so much sense. And I'll get back to that in a minute, that Amadeus Cho would become the new Hulk. And then secondarily, like I said, full disclosure, my wife is Korean. And so it wasn't lost on me how important it was that we had an Asian American superhero, you know, of some real weight out there. You know, I'm Mexican and I'm Mexican American, I'm mixed. And there's practically no good Mexican superheroes. <laughs> I mean, only recently we brought Robbie Ray as a new ghostwriter onto the table and he'll be in the new Shield show and he's sticking. But, you know, there's really an absence of great Mexican superheroes. And it's true, the same thing with Asian superheroes. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't see any great Korean superheroes out there. And I think it's amazing to see Amadeus Cho, this, you know. I love this, that he's so smart. <laughs> uh, exactly. Well, the thing is that, you know, how it came up is that, you know, we were discussing new launches at mm-hmm. one of our retreats. These are gatherings where the core writers and editors meet for three days and argue over AKA Marvel Camp, which exactly. I'm so obsessed with. We'll get to we'll that because oh, I have so no many doubt. questions. I know you do. I know you do. Uh, long and short is that, you know, we were at that meeting and we were discussing what we could do with the Hulk. And I just, I said right out the gate, you know, I, I've got to admit, I'm, I'm a little bored by going back to Banner. As much as I love Banner and I've, I've edited Banner, I felt like he needed a timeout. And I felt like, you know, in this era, there's a story to be told where someone else takes on the responsibility and it's not temporary and it's not in addition to Banner, but they carry that weight. And Mark Paniccia, one of my editors who is always opportunistic, yelled, how about Amadeus Cho? And full disclosure, he, he yells, how about Amadeus Cho for everything? But this time it happened to work <laughs> because, you know, what you've got is you've got this, this, you know, this young teenage, um, you know, cocky, um, arrogant uh, Korean kid uh, with a spiked up hair. You know what I'm talking yeah, about, right? Totally. <laughs> uh, and who is, is um, given this power and it's going to feel different. Um, you know, for Banner, Banner is a, you know, he's a middle-aged, Caucasian man who'd had, you know, he'd already lived life. He'd been taken down a peg or two when he was given that, 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 that burden. And for him, it was a curse, but would it be one for a kid like this? What about being awesome? Just wouldn't it be awesome to have the power of the Hulk? Uh, so what you've got is a dynamic where Amadeus has been given the keys to this Maserati mm-hmm. and he's driving it as fast as he can. And the tension will be whether or not he can drive it without crashing it. Right. Because he is so young. I mean, that's the thing. It's just like that unbridled excitement. It does so many things. It's like one, it gives a character that's already beloved sort of a new sort of, you know, story. But uh, the new people that will just be so obsessed with it. And going back to it, he's so pretty and he has no the best doubt. hair. No, doesn't he? Exactly. <laughs> the I said, K-pop no, hair. I got to say the whole time I'm like, no, the hair's got to be like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. That's wrong. The no, hair. this is too stiff. It's got to be kind of yeah. wavy no, on no, the no, side. No, no, no. More, more like this. More like this. There you go. Uh, you know, it's funny because, you know, one of the moments I really knew we were onto something is that um, when we made the announcement of the new Hulk, the totally awesome Hulk, I have two twin nephews, Miles and Reese, who are four years old and are, are big Marvel heads. They hyperventilate whenever I come over. And I got a text in the middle of the night from their mother saying that Miles was not able to get to sleep. And this is because he had heard that the new Hulk was a Korean boy 
and he was convinced he was going to be the next Hulk and the curse was going to inhabit him. <gasps> and he was lying there staring at the ceiling and terrified. And I had to call and get on the phone with him and explain to him that, first of all, uh, the Hulk could only have one host. So he had nothing to worry about. But if there were to be more than one host, he should understand it's going to be a lot of fun for this boy. This right. boy's going to have a lot of fun. It's not a curse. And Miles went to bed a lot happier. But I thought about, you know, how cool that was that Miles, you know, who, that he, he, he felt so, so passionate about this and he suddenly saw his reflection in this. He could relate to this character and he imagined himself having a place in that world that maybe he hadn't before. Well, yeah. also the fact that he couldn't get to sleep because suddenly he was just like confronted with like boundless possibility of exactly. unbridled power. Exa- <laughs> like, exactly. 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 Cool. Exactly. Yeah. It was hilarious. Yeah. No, that's, oh, that's amazing. So in terms of, you know, you've got a lot of different like characters that are now women and this and the other, and it's been kind of wonderful to see, you know, like Lady Thor beats the pants off a of dude Thor in, in terms of sell throughs and, you know, Miss Marvel won a Hugo last year. I feel like, it's been win after win for team comics. And going into that, I really want to talk to you about Ta-Nehisi Coates' Black Panther. Like you mentioned how important Black Panther was to you as a kid. What, how did that even come about? How did you approach him? Did he approach you guys? Like, sure. how did you make the dreams happen? Well, we were aware that Ta-Nehisi, like, first of all, we we're aware who Ta-Nehisi was. He was reporting for the Atlantic. Or and, the case uh, and, for reparations, that whole, yeah. And, and his writing on Black Lives Matter. We are also aware that he was a very singular voice, um, who, and a controversial voice even, um, uh, that he drew fire from all sides because of his, his positions. Um, uh, I was also very aware he was an atheist, so he wasn't coming from, his, his positions weren't informed by theology. He finds no comfort in, in invoking the word of God in anything. He's, he, he, you know, I just really respected his perspective as did a number of us. Um, we were where he was into comic books, and he, it just so happened that Tanahasi was was interviewing Sada Amanat, um, um, our our director of content development uh, and a former editor of mine. She still edits Ms. Marvel. Yeah, and uh, he was interviewing her for one of the Atlantic talks, and uh, it was at that point that we sort of reached out and said, "Hey, you know, if you're ever interested in writing some comics," and it turned out he was. So we began the conversation, and you know, he said, "You know, we were just said, you know, what would you be interested in?" And he was like, "Well, I really like Spider Man." We're like, well, that's kind of taken for now. And, and we just said, look, you know, just so you know, we really want to launch Black Panther. And he was interested. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we talked a bit further and, and he, he gave us a pitch. Uh, the pitch is a story he's doing right now, uh, A Nation Under Our Feet. Um, and we loved it. How many did it sell? Uh, the first issue sold 350,000 copies. I yeah. mean. I know. <laughs> that's wild. Like, yeah. just to give a ballpark sort of estimate as a comparison, what does, like, a normal title? Well, normal titles, they fluctuate. Everything from um, a healthy selling title will sell eighty to 100,000. So that'll give you an indication yeah. of what 350,000 exactly. means. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And in terms of, like, how much leeway he gets, is it just kind of like, is he given, like, here's some continuity things to be mindful of? Or was it like, hey, listen, just go buck? In this instance, we um, gave him very little direction. He, he Dude, came, what is that even yeah. like? <laughs> he, he came up with a pitch um, and, the, you know, this was a pitch that would have Wakanda in the throes of a revolution and one that would test T'Challa in a way he had never had to be tested before. Um, and it was all rooted in a question. And the question was, would a society this advanced uh, technologically and spiritually, would it abide a monarchy? And uh, did That's, it make yeah. sense that it would abide a monarchy? And um, that was just one of those million dollar questions that just hit us like a sledgehammer. 
And um, we said, please examine it. And the long tail on that is so amazing too. And like, just in terms of like the stories within that, that are being examined. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, every, every aspect of, of, of not only Wakandan society, but of course, a mirror image of ourselves and what we aspire to is being dissected in that book. I mean, of course. I mean, look at what's going on in the world right now. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. In America, like. And, you know, and Marvel, you know, our responsibility is to reflect on that and comment on that in some way, shape or form. On occasion, you do that directly. And other times you do it through metaphor. We found that metaphor is oftentimes the most potent way to do this because it allows you to do this. um, It allows you to have some distance from the topic. So people who might be uncomfortable discussing that topic can, you know, by way of comparison, the X-Men existed as a great metaphor for difference, for race, for, for gender, for sexuality. Ableism, Um, everything. Exactly. And, And people were willing to examine that. A lot of people came uh, to those comic books and related to them or willing to reflect on those the, the issues that were being contemplated were in because they had the distance of, of a metaphor. They weren't being asked to confront directly something that may have seemed like it was too loaded in political baggage. Speaking of which, when you approached ta to be the writer for Black Panther, was anyone, was anyone in the brass like nervous about it? Uh, I think, um, there was probably some questions that were, were sent our way, you know, how political were we going to get? Um, but really, let's take a look at what we've done over the last few years. I mean, you know, we, we've taken some incredible chances and um, it's to my company's credit that they've allowed us to do this. Uh, for, for the most part, I think what's important to, to state here is that we're not Republicans or Democrats. Um, and I wouldn't say that we're overwhelmingly progressive. What I would say is we want to be on the right side of history. You understand? I think we, we, we see when something's right and when something's wrong. And um, some of our best stories attempt to dissect, take a look at issues from both sides of the table. The original Civil War, as you recall, reflected on the post-9-11 world. Absolutely. And, and, and the Patriot Act. You know, our current event, Civil War II, is reflecting on a number of issues, um, not the least of which is the, you know, the, the, the ethics of, of, of racial profiling. You know, um, we, we're willing to take a look at these, these issues. And so in, in this particular case, I think that it became clear, you know, ta was a hardcore Marvel zombie who was going to do his research and he had a story to tell and it, you know, you don't expect him to come to the table without having something to say about the world. Absolutely. You know? and Especially with that kind of platform. I mean, the one that he already has, plus like just people who may not read him normally, like kids. Oh, absolutely. You know, he, in a lot of ways, he's my hero because, you know, he, he, you know, you have a high profile guy who's at the height of his powers. He's arguably the spokesman for his generation. And, you know, he, he, he'll get people looking at him incredulous, like, well, what are you doing writing a comic book? Right. That's uh, sort of like intellectual hierarchy bullshit. Exactly. Like, like it's something trivial. And, and his response is, is very clear, which is, I don't make a distinction. I, for me, I write what I want to write. Either I want to write it or I don't want to write it. Either I find satisfaction, I have something to say, or I don't. Ugh. And I fully expect that Ta-Nehisi will write stuff at Marvel for as long as he feels he's got something to say. And when he doesn't, he won't. And luckily for us, it seems that he has lots to say right now. Well, obviously, as a writer, he's my hero also. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Ta-Nehisi also had a hand in recruiting some incredible writers for Wakanda. I mean, this, these are some really inspired choices. A poet and Professor Yona Harvey and Roxanne Gay, who's the author of Bad Feminist and actually the author of one of my favorite collections of short stories ever, Ayiti, is it true that they're the first black women to, hi- to write at 
Marvel. It's he brought to my attention. I guess that they are, as a matter of fact. Yeah, and wow, I think that's it's wild. It's a fantastic thing, you know. And really, what this is is that you know we're seizing opportunity here. Mm-hmm. You know, people have to understand that change can come slow. When you, if you're committed to it, you can move quick. You can take advantage. You know, this is an instance where we're we're seeing how people are responding to the Black Panther. We wanted to expand. Um, we were fascinated by Ao and Aneka. The two characters. Yeah, uh, totally. Particular. I love that they're, they're black and they're queer and they're yeah, written yeah. by women. And, uh, yeah, I think absolutely. It's a- we, we, think, we think they're incredible characters. People have connected with them. And we wanted to do a series, you know, and editor Will Moss spoke with ta and ta had immediate ideas and we moved quickly. Um, we were decisive. Um, and that's really the way that we roll right now is, you know, we, we, if we, we think there's, a, there's an opportunity here, we're, we're going to take it. That's awesome. So... Does he go to Marvel camp? Yes, he does. <laughs> he, yes, does? he does. Does he really? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Tanahashi's been to uh, uh, one the one Marvel camp. The last one he wasn't able to because he was in Paris. He was living in Paris and he couldn't make it. He'll be at the next one. Um, uh, yeah, he's an eager um, participant in these. So, what the, are these? Well, basically, what it is is that um, we have a. It's not the same group that attends every time. Okay. What it is is it's. It's a, the core group of writers, the writers who happen to be working on the most um, connected books, the core series uh, that, um, that interconnect and have the most, the most reach, uh, along with the, the, the editors. And so we, for the cheap seats, what, what books are we talking here? We're talking about Avengers, right. Spider-Man. Um, ironically, sometimes the X-Men editors are there. Sometimes they don't need to be because we'll have our own dedicated X-Men retreat. Right. Um, but... Usually they are there. What is that retreat called? Uh, the X-Men retreat. <laughs> Very cleverly titled yeah, X-Men retreat. A bunch of writers. There you go. There you go. But the Marvel retreats, basically, they happen three to four times a year. And we all go into a room for three days and we um, break down every single family. The, the Avengers family books, the, um, the Guardians books, the Inhumans books, uh, Spider-Man books, X-Men books. We go through and we, we basically take a look at what what individual editorial offices plans are. How arduous are these things? Uh, they're actually a lot of fun. How uh, drunk are you guys? Uh, we're drunk by the first night we are. <laughs> uh, we're sober throughout the entire first day. Um, they're spirited. I mean, let me put it this way. There's never a retreat when I don't want to launch myself across the table and choke someone. It, you know, and, and with it, someone doesn't want to choke me. Um, it, it's, it's, it, we let it all hang out. But you don't like just sit there like an emperor with a scepter being like, I decree that you are wrong. It's not like that. No, I would be no. so drunk with that. Oh, I wish I could. No, 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 we don't work like that. I mean, the way, the way it goes is that I'll try and, and make sure to direct the conversation insofar as trying to keep us from avoiding going down rabbit holes for too long right. and keep us on point. But the ideas, by and large, are generated by the writers and editors in the room about what we do. Do artists ever get invited? Yeah, we occasionally have artists. Scotty Young and Adam Kubert have attended. Okay. Um, we, we've had artists. Uh, um, and we will continue to do that. Uh, what we found is it's usually at its most efficient if we limit the room to about 10 writers plus the editors. Once we go beyond that, it gets a little out of hand. Just There's, mayhem. Yeah, yeah. It's just too many people in the room. And that's why we'll frequently have satellite ones where we'll do an X-Men one or Spider-Man went off to the side because um, it's better that we have a more focused discussion about those groups. So in terms of which writers are invited, do you get an invitation on like 
embossed engraved like you get an email <laughs> <laughs> but are, are people like oh i didn't get an invite this year or uh, this you know, quarter in, in, in truth yeah i think sometimes people think that if they're not invited that it means they're on the outs but it's it's never that way um who's it, it, the biggest mean girl at marvel camp though is it you i probably am i am yeah yeah i'd be mean to people yeah you can't <laughs> i don't mean us. to be mean though it's just you know fair so you know going back to all these like really exciting new iterations You've got a new Iron Man in Riri Williams. What is the executive decision making in, in having someone like Bendis, who is a very, very seasoned writer, um, writing Riri? The executive decision was very simple. You know, Brian was launching an Iron Man book and he created a character named Riri Williams as a supporting character. And he had a goal for her. He wanted to evolve her into something more. And um, it just so happens that Brian is also writing Civil War. And as we were plotting Civil War, let's just say that events happened that made us realize that we could pivot and, and have an even larger role for Riri. So she went from having plan A to plan B, which is suddenly she became the new Iron Man. Mm-hmm. This wasn't something that was planned at the beginning. It was a, it was a, a pivot moment where we realized, wow, we can, we can do this. This is a significant moment. We can have someone like her become Iron Man. So this is a character he created and who he's getting onto the table. The key thing is, remember, that character now exists in the Marvel Universe. How likely is it that only Brian Bendis will ever write this character. Right. This character is now in play. And, um, you know, it, it goes without saying that our goal, I hope people looking at our track record and seeing what we've done in, in the last year, last two years, uh, and stuff we've been planning for longer than that, will understand that we have a goal. We, have, we, we don't import a character like Riri Williams onto the table without the desire to have her connect with as many people as possible. Right. Um, she is part of the same tradition as Amadeus Cho, as Robbie Reyes, as Miles Morales. Kamala Khan. You know, again, Kamala Khan. Yeah. Um, very much so. That is her goal. You so know, it's but, more about like, you know, creating a conduit versus this like finite little cul-de-sac where this one writer is going to write her forever and ever and ever. It's basically like having a fun new entity to play with in the world so that other people exactly, can step up. Exactly. You know, people that say, well, why is Brian writing her? Well, because Brian created her and Brian's writing her now. Um, you know, we, we, also she's involved in stories that he yeah, has. She, she was already embedded, yeah. already embedded in stories that he's writing. Right. And so he'll define her. And as is always the case, someone at some point in time will come along and write Riri as well and, and further define that character. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing too. Like if you talk about define, it's not this finite thing either. It's like, you know, it's not the source material is going to be engraved in stone. It's more just like setting this person up and you've, your track record definitely does show that you throw shit out all the time where you're just kind of like this attribute gone, this has evolved. This is going to change. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you get your, you let your characters live. You know, they're, they're, they're made in, they're made of clay. You know, writers come along and toss out a few pieces of clay and sometimes add a couple more. Sometimes they remodel the clay a little bit. There's always the essential clay, you know, the stuff that you don't throw away. Um, You know, you know, with a Hulk, for instance, we've got a new Hulk, but Banner, you know, um, and of course we, as you, if you don't know, Banner was just killed in Civil War too, but, but Banner's still Banner. You know, and, and when and if he comes back, imagine, you know, imagine that. Yeah, people. Um, you know, there, there's still, you know, there, there's just truths about Banner that will hold true, you know. Um, no, I love that. I, I love that, you know, I think that comics sometimes get a little criticism. You talk about Banner potentially coming back and all these characters like dying and coming back in, in different permutations. But it kind of makes the playing field like 
less fetishistic and like precious. You can just keep stories going, which is what the life force should Look, be. I'd say two things about that. One of them is that, you know, um, comic books are unlike any other form of, of, of storytelling you've ever seen. Um, you know, if, 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 uh, mythology is finite, um, it's passed from generation to generation, but it's not always getting new layers, you know, television shows, you know, a, a television show like Seinfeld lasts for 10 seasons or what have you. And everybody gives a standing ovation. Spider-Man has been around for 50 years. Spider-Man's older than I am. And he will be around long after I'm dead. You understand? Long after any of us are dead, our grandchildren will be reading new Spider-Man stories. But during the time he's been around, he's been in so many different stories by so many different creative teams. Um, and some of those stories have been amazing. And some of them have been less than amazing. But, but that, is, that, is, that is unique. You, you, there's, no other, there's no other character, there's no other literature out there that has allowed characters to experience so much for such a long span of time. Uh, and and Spider-Man's going nowhere, you follow me? That character will always be around, the same as the Hulk. So that's the first thing I would say, is, 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 is just remind people how unique our medium is and how yeah, many stories poetic, there man. are. And the second thing is that it's like, look, you know, people that object to death and reincarnation, that is one of the beauty, beautiful tropes of our medium, is that death and reincarnation are part of our storytelling. Um, you know, perhaps it was also true of some Greek mythology, but I can't think of, of any other form of literature that has had that as one of its tropes. Um, and, and I think that we need to embrace that and accept that and have fun with it. What matters is that the hero has a glorious death and it should mean something. And if, and when that hero comes back, that hero, it should mean something and it should, it should stir you to tears again. Yeah. You understand? I think that's the goal. Uh, it, what's, what's, What's a failure is when you do it and no one cares, that it doesn't matter, that it doesn't affect people. Or it's done and it's been done before, like yeah. ad nauseum, ad infinitum. Yes. So no, I love it as this sort of mantle that's passed from generation to generation, from storyteller to storyteller and how you give people room to flex. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, no, I mean, that's the, I mean, you and I have worked together. Um, we worked on Lady Deadpool and that was really fun because, you know, Victor Gishler had written a couple of um, introductory things on her, but I could do whatever I want. Yeah. And that was wild. Yeah. And you should do it again. I would want to. Yeah, we'll I definitely talk about that later. <laughs> okay, sounds good. No, and and I just as a storyteller, the fact that the medium is created in a way where not one storyteller is given just all the glory also makes it just a beautiful thing. And yeah, I'm I ride for Team Comics super hard. And on that note, so you had a great quote in an interview in Fast Company, and it was it said on our end, we're just trying to make comic books that connect. It's not our job to worry about whether that translates to the screen. We're not R&D for TV and movies. We're just creating comic books. So I love this. And, you know, going back to some of your early work, like Preacher and Hundred Bullets, I know that they've either been adapted for on screen or on the process of, of being adapted. But these comic books really stand out to me as comics that are super successful and wonderful at being comics. The information is dispatched in a way that's really just fucking awesome to the parameters of the form. And do you get annoyed when people think it is this hierarchy that you guys are just the salt mine for Marvel studios? It's a bit irritating. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, look, the thing is I root as much as or more than the next guy for the success of the Marvel movies, but my job security and my staff's job security doesn't hinge upon the success of the movies. 
what 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 we're paid to do is tell great comic book stories and 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 tell stories for the future uh you know uh, if 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 we were worried about about marching in lockstep then we wouldn't have a female thor and a black captain america and a korean hulk um it's to the credit of marvel that we can have this autonomy yeah the fact that they're not just being like it has to be this one continuous thing absolutely no marvel studios has done a phenomenal job of taking decades worth of stories and source material and distilling it down to one sharp narrative that that boils down the character of their essence and some some of the stories are rooted in 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 source material that dates back decades and some of the movies are rooted in stuff that happened during the last decade like civil war or 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 the winter soldier uh the long and short of it is they make decisions about about stories that they think resonate and will resonate with with a modern crowd uh and that's their job and they do it phenomenally what we try and do is just tell stories that we think make sense and you know i'd love to see um, I'm thrilled to see Robbie Reyes show up in Agents of Shield. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm I was absolutely thrilled to see Civil War um, become a movie. You know, I was I, at a table and we came up with Civil War. You know, dude, th- but also just like you know, going to Marvel Studios, the way they did Civil War was rad. Like I was so so nervous because I feel like a lot of the time there are certain um, movies that are adapted from comic books where it's just all over the place, and Civil War, like just in terms of like how many books sort of led up to the events, like something like a house of M or whatever, you know? And I was like, okay, they've got like this many minutes of on-screen time, how they're going to do it. And I just thought it was such a potent, potent visualization of what you guys did. Yeah. They nailed it. Again. They fucking nailed yeah, it. Yeah. They nailed it. You know, they, they can focus on one thing. We got to focus on 82. <laughs> I don't want to hate, but I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> but, uh, oh, I'd love to focus on one thing, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. but no, but they, 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 they stuck the landing, you know, they really stuck the landing. And, and so I walked away being super excited for the new Spider-Man movie, which I was like a little bit like, Oh, it's, it feels a little shop worn for me, but the new Peter Parker, he's nerdy and he's dorky and he's pun obsessed and he's exactly. corny and he's so from Queens. Like, yeah. no, he's and he's perfect. built like Spider-Man too. Yes, yeah, yes. It, it was the first time I saw a Spider-Man I didn't think shaved. You know what I'm saying? Yes. It, I felt like, you know, here's a guy, he, 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 he's skinny, he's wiry, he's awkward, he, he talks too much because he's, he's compensating for something. I loved him. I can't wait to see it. Me too. Yeah. Wow. And plus on me. Hello. No doubt. <laughs> and, and no, I'd love to see Miles up there too. Miles Morales in a movie. Hey, that'd be fantastic. Absolutely. You know? Um. So, you know, I also noticed that going back into like all these different characters that you give a lot of your super young characters, a lot of agency. And I was wondering, I mean, is, do you think that age should also be a factor in representation? Do you think that kids reading comics right now are like smarter? What's your, what's your vibe? What's your deal? Uh, yes. Uh, we think it's important to have young characters. I think it's important, um, to have characters who have, um, you know, um, who have stepped onto the playing field and aren't as seasoned. And have young people problems. Yeah. They have young people problems. Exactly. I think that, you know, what we have is, you know, when you've been around as long as Peter Parker, even if you're in your mid twenties, you've, you've, you've lived a lot. You've done a lot of things. You know, Miles Morales, he's landed in the Marvel Universe. It's like, it's all new to him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a voyage of discovery for him. I think it's very important that, that kids have that. You know, if you look around, you know, Kamala Khan, she's starting from scratch. You know, Robbie Ray as a new ghostwriter is starting from scratch. His responsibility is taking care of his younger brother, Gabe. You know, it's just him and Gabe against the world. Amadeus Cho is, is learning what it's like to be the Hulk. And, and he thinks he can, you know, he can carry that responsibility 
um, like a feather. We'll see if he can, yeah. you know, I think it's important that, that, you know, we have, uh, young characters, as you say, have, that have young people problems and are, and are discovering what it means to be a hero. So going back to sort of your, the day-to-day of your actual job itself, how many emails, dispatches, texts, calls, and all that shit do you get in a day? Ballpark. More than I can answer. You also literally rubbed your eyes tiredly yeah. when I asked you. I did. I did. I, I, uh, yeah, that's a tell. That's called a tell. Uh, I get a lot. Yeah. yeah. I get a lot without a doubt. Are you I, inbox zero or do you have like little... I think my inbox, I got like 785 not answered or something like that. That's not bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Not too shabby. No, no, that's that's good. Something like that. I definitely have friends who have like 5,000 or like they have the dot, dot, dot in between because it's like 10,000. Yeah, I'm probably underestimated mine. Tackle one (laughs) on the phone. But no, I get a lot of emails. um, You know, not all of them uh, are answered. I have very aggressive spam filters um, as a necessity. So a lot of times people contact me, but it doesn't get to me. Okay. Um, That's how it goes. Because yeah, you've had the same email for a while. Yeah. So we will find out. Um, how much emotional and mental and intellectual real estate does your job take up? Uh, I would say it takes up a lot, but it's a good thing. And, you know, I'm on this show for a reason. I've got a great job. Um, it's, um, it's, uh, uh, it's great power and great responsibility. I've got Stan Lee's job, you know, uh, I'm no Stan Lee, but I'm, I'm doing my best. You know, I think that, you know, the key thing here is that you know, I take my job seriously. Um, I have a great staff. Uh, I think that, you know, one of my guiding philosophies is that um, you, only a stupid person goes into a room and thinks they're the smartest about everything. Right. You understand? Um, I have a great group of editors. Um, my editors have uh, a wide range of skills. Uh, there are plenty of people out there that do, th- do certain aspects of their job better than me and know things. Tom Brevoort, for instance, has forgotten more about Marvel continuity than I will ever learn. Um, you know, he's a walking repository of knowledge, yeah. and, and, but that's not to diminish his, his skill as a story editor. No one is better at standing in the middle of an event with a thousand characters spinning around and keeping focus on all of the details. Mm. You know, I've got a great range of, I've got a great crew. You know, my editor, Will Moss is very skilled at bringing in new writers. Mm. You know, San Amon was, of course, was instrumental in the creation of Ms. Marvel, which is a, a, a really pivotal character. Um, and, and a high point in our last few years, uh, and, uh, sort of the flagship of, of the diversity that we've had. You know, I'm, I'm very fortunate uh, to have good people working for me. So what do you do? This is a question I ask every guest that comes in. What do you do for self-care, like to actually take care of yourself? Uh, to take care of myself? Well, I've got a lovely wife who's very supportive and I have a lot of fun with. And I coach basketball. Um, uh, my son is... Um, Something of a, of a, of a Michael Jordan, 13 year Michael Jordan. <laughs> Casual. <laughs> Casual, I'll drop that there. No, I, I coach basketball. I love it. I, I, I can't play anymore because I'm too old, but I really get pumped going out there in my rec league with my travel team and, and watching them go up against other people. Um, you know, it gets my, my, my adrenaline going. Um, and uh, what else do I do? So um, like dominating on other kids is your, your meditation. Exa- exactly. Yeah. That's not a, maybe that's not <laughs> that's a healthy your zen thing. Place. <laughs> and I, I try and get my, my, uh, my, my time away, you know, mm-hmm. on a beach once a year. Uh, but no, I, I'd say, you know, the good thing about it is that, you know, I have a job that uh, I'm passionate about. So, so um, it all, it all folds together nicely. I don't need to run away right. from my job. You're so not much like, as this take is a for the check. Yeah, exactly. So do you miss writing and editing and all that stuff? I do, but uh, I really love what I do more. I think that, you know, I made a choice at one point that what was most important to me is, be, is to be someone who, who produced, who, who, who worked in the background. And I had a conversation with my friend Pete Rock, you know, the hip hop 
casual also. I don't mean to name drop it. I, I don't know how that sounds, but you know, he's very much in, cut from the same mold as he takes such satisfaction being in the background and being the auteur creating. Um, it's more important to him than getting up on the mic. You understand? And I, I can't relate more. I, for me, seeing, seeing the tapestry of Marvel right now, you know, is more important to me than being the, the writer on one core book. You mm-hmm. know, um, it just, it's as simple as that. I, I enjoy that role. I mean, and that's why so many like great nuggets of content are in your wake. Like just something like that video piece that you did with Run the Jewels and ta and Black Panther, like that got born because yeah, of no, your I, love of hip hop and like all this other stuff. You know, again, that's the thing is that, you know, I, I saw, I saw a moment coming the moment we're experiencing right now a long time ago, because I would, I would, I'd always find myself, you know, at shows or what have you finding, finding people, you know, who, who, who had similar backgrounds in me, similar passions, you know, and, you know, just simply put, you know, the backbeat for my life has always been R and B and hip hop. And, and I knew how many people were either writing or drawing while listening to, you know, Pete Rock or Camp Lowe or Drake or Future, whatever. I thought, I thought you, know? you were just, oh, just going to name old school things. Exactly. No, 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 no. My son has turned me on to some stuff right there. Fair, fair. I didn't know who Vince Staples was till my oh. son was like, this stuff is corny. And he gives me Vince Staples. I'm like, hey, that's pretty good. Oh, you know? he's so yeah. woke. I love that. Yeah, no doubt. Oh God, he's such a teen. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you've got a teenager when you call them and they just hit reject. You know? That's when you know. <laughs> but uh, no, I think that, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a cool job. No, for sure. I mean, it's kind of, you're like sitting in Cerebro and you're like just picking out all the people that like are special. And well, if only it were that simple. Again, <laughs> like I, I think uh, you may, you may overestimate the, the limits of my power. I think that the great thing about Marvel, we have a great system of checks and balances and the buck does end with me and I'll advocate for things and veto things, but I never do so. I never do so summarily. Um, I very much feel that I very much pay attention to the pulse of the room, the people in the room, there have been decisions made in summits that um, I've disagreed with that I've let move forward because I feel that the arguments for them are strong enough that I can support them. Um, and the arguments I would use against them aren't strong enough that I'm going to dig in my heels for making sense right. uh, and be stubborn. Um, it, it's make, war versus battles, basically. I mean, that's... Without a doubt. Yeah. And there's also those moments when, when, when you, you absolutely positively know you're right, whether it's a story point. Something doesn't make any sense. And there's moments when you feel like, look, it could go either way. And I'm going to trust you and your instincts in this group and go for it, you know? So in terms of like, it sounds like you're incredible at diplomacy, amongst other things. What are some of the ingredients that you possess that make you good at your job? Because also, you, you know, when you became EIC, I remember a couple of articles being like, wow, it's, it's amazing that this man has come to, you know, get his hyphen, so to speak. And there's been so little bloodshed. Like you sound like you're really good at diplomacy. Like what other characteristics? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate what you're saying. I, I think that it, um, I'm not even sure I would even thought of it as, as being diplomatic so much as I just, I truly believe that I've got a great staff and you know, there, there's, there, there's, like I said before, I think that, that the stupidest people for me are people that go into a room and think they're the best and smartest at everything. That is a definition of a fool to me. If you go into a room, there's always going to be people that have a perspective about something where they're smarter than you. You understand they have some insight, something you should draw upon, or shouldn't be, they shouldn't be in the room. You know, at, at Marvel, the great thing is I, I greatly respect the people up the food chain for me, and I respect the people that work lateral to me and the people that work below me. And, and everybody's there for a reason. 
and we argue, um, we'll debate. Um, the buck will end with me on many big things. But I think that for me, you know, um, if you want to call that diplomacy, you can. For me, it's just being smart. You know, I think you're that, like, it's just called being right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you know, going back to being the smartest in the room and not, do you still have mentors now that you're at this part of your game? Oh man, mushy. Uh, I would say that, yeah, yeah. Well, you put me on the spot. Uh, I would say that, yeah, I, I would say that, you know, uh, I learned and continue to learn a lot from Joe Casada. Right. Um, you know, I've, I've told Joe, he's like the older brother I never had. Um, he may not know that, but I think it's very, it still holds true. Uh, you know, I learned a lot from him. Uh, I learned a lot from him fighting him, uh, because we would have differences of opinion. Uh, and, and, um, and, you know, sometimes I was right. And oftentimes he was right. Uh, I think that, that it's always good. Um, when you look at your relationship to see that someone pushed back, uh, and that you, you learned something from that fight, from that argument. Uh, I greatly respect Dan Buckley, my boss, you know, uh, he, uh, he, uh, he's the one person I'm accountable to at all points in time. What's I, his title? Ah, uh, boy, I don't know. He's president. Uh, he, he, he runs, he runs things. He run, yeah. yeah. You know, I, he's the guy I know if I'm going to get yelled at, it's going to be Dan. And, yeah. uh, you know, the thing is that, you know, I, I have a good relationship with him. One where I think he trusts the editorial group a lot. Um, I, I'll troubleshoot and let him know, look, just so you know, we're thinking of doing this and, uh, I want to get your input here. Um, you know, I'm gonna, there's times when I ask for permission and there's times when I ask for forgiveness. Right, you know? exactly. <laughs> I have to choose between the two. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, just to give everyone some background, Joe Casada obviously is the editor in chief before you and he's still at Marvel in an executive capacity, right? Yeah, he's a chief creative officer. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dope. Yeah. Um, so do you have mentees? Like. Mentees? Um, boy. Talk to, I think it's better asked of the staff, you know, um, I, I, I know who I'm trying to mentor. <laughs> I don't know if it's working yet. I don't know if it's Fair. working yet. Yeah, yeah. Might not quite take. Yeah. Um, how do you become a writer at Marvel? Good question. Um, the, people think they, they'll just email you and you'll just wave a wand and exactly. No, there's many, many paths. I think one of the, 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 the First things people should realize is how competitive it is. Um, so many people want to work for Marvel. Who doesn't? Um, everybody's got a story. Uh, the key thing is you got to get noticed. So you need to be good and you need to be lucky and in the right place. Um, that said, there's many paths. Um, if you aren't a National Book Award winning author, <laughs> <laughs> then uh, there's still hope for you. Um, and that hope is that you create comics. You know, people ask, how do you break into comics? And I'd say, well, what you do is you don't wait for our permission to make them. Oh, that's amazing advice. Yeah. You know, what you do is you make them. If, if being in comics is important to you, whether you're a writer or an artist, go out and make one, you know, um, invest your money as well as your time in it. And show yourself that you can complete it. Absolutely. You just took my next point. Don't just start it, finish it. Whether it's a short story, an eight page story, or a a graphic novel, finish it. If you're a writer and you don't know any artists, go online, find an artist. If you have any knowledge of the industry, you'll understand that a, a writer's time commitment is nowhere near the artist's time commitment. 
Oh my so, God, seriously. Oh, yeah, the, the amount of time it takes to draw a comic book is it's, it's immense. And also, you know, going back to that, I think that people, because like technology is magical and social media and Snapchat, 24 hours later, everything gone. Yo, you write down one sentence in a comic book script and that artist has to sit down and fucking draw the whole oh, yeah. thing. So please don't make it like, you know, rain or like falling leaves. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, multiple robots coming from this over Times Square in the rain with fire and cars. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, you got to understand that, you know, the artist, it's, it's a really difficult job and it, it takes a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of sweat. So, you know, if you want to get noticed, you might consider taking some of your money and paying your artist for their time. You know, this is the way to get noticed. Uh, people do get noticed this way. You know, um, you know, uh, we get snide comments about, well, you know, now you suddenly you need to be a National Book Award winning author to be a comic book. <laughs> you, you guys can't win, huh? No, you can't. You can't. <laughs> David Walker didn't win a National Book Award, but he was on our radar for an excellent little comic book he was doing, Shaft. Uh, and before that, another uh, comic book he did. And we had our eye on him and we wanted him. And we positioned him with the right project in Pyramid Iron Fist and he's arrived. You understand? So there, there's plenty of opportunities um, if you, um, you can find a way to get noticed. And just uh, do it. Just do it. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's advice for people in terms of like, and now you're definitely not going to be a writer at Marvel? Definitely not. Um, well, for starters, make a comic book that we start to read and we just aren't interested. You know, you need to get noticed. You need to have something to say. If you're going to make a comic book, probably not a good idea to do a Spider-Man story. You know, show us something you created, story you want to do. So don't know? do like a spec script. Like a lot of people will basically just be like, here, I'm going to write a friend's spec script. Like yeah, don't my, do that. My advice would be no. You know, if you think about the, many of the writers that have broken over the last few years, they did so by working on independent work, you know, um, by doing web comics. Uh, you know, there's any number of people that got on the radar uh, by doing small things, uh, personal things, things that showed their voice, uh, their passions, their skills. Uh, and quite frankly, that's the best way to, to get noticed. Okay. So my final two, possibly three questions. Um, do you think that you have the coolest job in the world? It's awfully close. I will tell you that much. Yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah, I, I, I'd say it is. It is. It's pretty darn cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is, and is there just even like an inkling of another job in the universe that you would even begin to entertain? Well, head of Marvel Studios wouldn't be bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, like I said, I'll j only, I only half joke when I say, uh, you know, starting point guard for the Golden State Warriors, my hometown team. But I think that position is taken. Uh, you know, I think that uh, the other great job would be to just sit back and write a book. You know? Really? Yeah, yeah. Just, Man, you're just have, a glutton for punishment, the, aren't you? Yeah, I know. Easier <laughs> said than done, right? Yeah, I have a few ideas. No, but to have the, actually to have the, the time and the space to just sit down and do that would be wonderful. I think that would be a, a dream job. Maybe I I'll think, do that one day. You know? Yeah, and you could work for you. Exactly. It'd be great. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for coming in. I'm super stoked. And I, I love that we had such an emotional <laughs> conversation <laughs> that's, that skewed towards mushing towards the end. But um, thanks so much for coming by. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I'm in love with my